Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today for the second time is author Alan Zundel. Alan Zundel is also a civil activist and an online video producer. Alan, welcome to the show. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really cool. Uh, we brought you on today to talk about your new book. Uh, let me see. I got it. I got it right here. This is uh, The Creation of the Green Party of the United States and Its Neglect of a Strategic Dilemma. Uh, I have to be honest, I had didn't get a chance to completely digest the book, though the little bit that I have read, I'm about three chapters in and I, I kind of, you told me to skip to the concluding uh, <laughs> chapter if I hadn't uh, finished Just to it. the bottom line. Yeah, right. And I, I do want to say it is very digestible. I'm really enjoying it. We're going to talk a little bit today about what the book is about, kind of your motivation for writing it. Uh, so yeah, again, thanks for doing this. This is really sure. Cool. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, this is this is a good friendship we've been building behind the scenes in different capacity, but this is great to have you on the show for a second time. So the book is basically an overview of the history of the Green Party in the United States. And you had served as an officer of the Pacific Green Party and were a 2016 candidate for Secretary of State in Oregon. Uh, you are no longer with the Green Party, is that correct? That is correct. Now, what happened there? Now, we're going to talk a lot about this and kind of bounce around, but you know, what is, what is it that came to your conclusion to kind of leave the party? Okay. Well, let me think of how to make this a short story rather than a long story. <laughs> the beauty of it is we're on a podcast. It can be long. Okay. Um, like I said, or like you said, I was an officer in the state green party here, the Pacific green party. And as uh, the 2016 election season began to wear down, I started thinking about, well, what's going to be our strategy going forward towards the 2018 election cycle? And I was really racking my brain as to, you know, how the party could move forward from where we had seemed to be stuck, which is we field candidates and they lose. And we didn't seem to be building numbers or numbers of registered voters, numbers of voters in our, our in our uh, in the elections or, you know, winning anything uh, aside from a few local offices. Um, so I was thinking about strategy. And the reason I started getting into the research on this book. I wasn't originally planning to write a book. I was more interested in, well, what was the strategy starting out with the Green Party and how did it evolve over time? And then I could kind of fit in what we were doing with what they had learned going forward. I think where things get a start and the path they've trod tells you a lot about where you can go from here. Um, but my conclusion really was by the, uh, by the time I, I got to the point where I was uh, I, I printed a, uh, I put an ebook version of this earlier in 2018 because I just kind of came to the conclusion there was no strategy going forward. And I, I didn't really want to keep delving into it because I saw that the, the problems in my mind are insurmountable unless you change the election system. Um, so there were other problems in the Green Party and I, and uh, I, I don't know that we need to get into that, but, you know, like every minor party, it's it's a little bit difficult to make anything happen because you don't have much hope of actually electing people to um, higher offices. Right. And I'm sure there's a lot of frustration when it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. You know, when that's the story of my life in terms of any political <laughs> this, activism. This is, this is one of the things I love about you, though, is, is that we obviously have a little bit of an age difference, but we have a very similar disdain for uh, just experience, just life, but it is, it's, in a, it's in a, it's in a funny way, you know, because there's a simple, there's a charm to just 
I don't know how to explain it, but it's something that I see in, in your texts or your posts on Facebook. It cracks me up because we definitely have kind of this dark sense of humor and just this like throwing your hands up, like what the hell, you know, yeah. you know, but so now the green party is really interesting to me because I think a lot of people, especially in Oregon would really fit inside of this, uh, umbrella of what it represents, you know, and I kind of just Googled the overview, uh, you know, of what the Green Party is. And, and some of the basic tenets are environmentalism, nonviolence, grassroots democracy, social justice, anti-war, anti-racism, and eco-socialism. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure if I know what eco-socialism is. Maybe you can expunge on that a little bit. Well, people have different views on that, but essentially it has to do with making environmental concerns central to any vision of socialism you have. You, yeah. If you go back you know, 50 years, you could say socialists were trying to, in, in some areas, build an industrial economy and make it more um, amenable to the needs of working people. But there wasn't a lot of thought about the environment. So more, more modern times, it's, you know, how do we build an economy that's environment friendly and right. not contributing to the climate crisis? And I think the word that I left out of that overview really is sustainability. I think that yeah. sustainability is crucial in, in, you know, what the green party was, is all about. Uh, you know, one of the things the last time we, I had you on, it was kind of funny cause, and I'm paraphrasing and it's been a, it's been quite a while. It was maybe a year and a half ago or something, but you had said that you kind of consider yourself to be a libertarian socialist. That's probably the closest label I could find that means anything to anybody else. <laughs> it's so, I, I love that. You know, in my last episode, Jeremy Cummings, he talked about how he's a libertarian anarcho-socialist. And he said something, which is so funny to me, but in Eugene, this makes sense. It really does. And he said something to me that I thought was, was really interesting because he talked about, you know, socialism on a local level that he believes in that. And, and, and that's something that would you say, you know, the green party, the libertarian elements, it's because they believe in a limited government federally. Is that correct? Well, that was a big faction of the green party back when they got started is anarchist socialists who wanted to maintain bring things down to a lower level, like remove power from the higher levels of government and bring it back down to the local level. So most of their activism was oriented towards local politics, local concerns, um, community concerns, not always political, but just being involved in the community and trying to make it work better for people in general rather than the investing class or the uh, real estate people, which is usually at a local level, the people who have the power uh, so that was a big faction. But then there was another faction that wanted to move more into politics as as we know it, you know, political parties and running people and all that. So from the beginning, there was um, dissension over whether, you know, whether people had more anarchist orientation or more, were more concerned with the environment and less oriented towards socialism or anarchism or anything like that. Right. The idea of anarcho-socialism is really funny to me because the socialism's become such a big bad word. And I think people, when they're saying it is a negative, they're, they're talking about communism. They're not talking about socialism really at all, because I think that we have ex- examples of socialism being extremely successful in this country, you know, in whatever hybrid, you know, system we have, I mean, social security and I mean, social security is a little different to a lot of people. Cause they're like, I paid for it. And I'm like, well, no, that's literally how everything works. I mean, we pay for all of it, <laughs> you know, but I don't know. But well, uh, anarchism is an even more scary word for people. Well, and I mean, yeah, because I, I don't I don't understand how you can have it's it's the lack of any organized anything, wouldn't it be? I mean, no, it means um, it's opposition to state power that's built on violence. Right. So it would be more cooperative organization, more voluntary organization and less forced organization. Yeah. And we're seeing some of that in Portland. You know, we're seeing some, some of mean, that. You know, it's hard. To, it's really hard to build an anarchist society in in the middle of a society where people have been traumatized by violence and oppression for a long time, because they just haven't been able to build the skills to cooperate very well. Yeah, there's a documentary that I and I don't know if this is off the point, but that I really enjoyed, and I'm sure you've seen it. If a tree falls, about the uh, kind of anarchist movement in the early nineties in no, I haven't seen late nineties in uh, Eugene. And so if a tree falls, what it's about is a tree coming down. I mean, it's a play on words <laughs> there, 
but a tree coming down in downtown Eugene and a bunch of uh, yeah. activists basically, you know, hung themselves or like they uh, chained themselves to the tree. And there was, there was a lot of, like you're saying, a lot of uh, violence, uh, destruction of property is probably the better word because violence, I, I, I feel like it, it makes you an assumption that it's towards people. Yeah. You know, and they're definitely, we're not trying to hurt people, but it, I just side note, but I highly recommend anybody listening, look up if a tree falls. It's a great documentary about the history of Eugene. And we're talking about the history of the green party here. So let's get back to that. Yeah. Buy my book first. Yeah. Buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get to that in a, in a, in a lot, you know, in a, in, in a bit here, I'm going to have a link in the show notes to the Amazon, uh, link and you know it's it's a very affordable book paperback easy to read it's not very long i mean it's just over 100 pages uh also and it's relatively inexpensive so jeff bezos isn't going to make much money off of it right neither are you the, but uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that's so, a given <laughs> yeah so uh no but the beauty of it today and and amazon it unfortunately serves its purpose you know there it, the ability to get this book out the way that you have quickly and, and effectively and affordably is good. So there's, there's, this is what I do actually appreciate about Amazon is kind of the self-publishing model. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there it's available in Kindle and in paperback. So for Kindle, it's only four ninety nine. So for people yeah, that use can't Kindle, go wrong with that, you can't go wrong with that and then support somebody local. So buy it, read it when you get a chance. It's a very good book. And like I said, it's extremely digestible and it's really interesting to, what I was learning, well, you know, the little bit that I read is is basically kind of where I stand with with some of the viewpoints that I agree with, but also where I see where the direction of the country where we should be heading, and then conversations we can have with people that are just disgruntled with the two party system. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that there's in the beginning of the book in in your your kind of personal experience that drew you to the party where you're talking about that. There's so much relatable stuff in there, and I like how you used mentions of the 2016 uh, campaign for Bernie Sanders. And he's somebody that would be considered, you know, independent third party, whatever that ran inside of the democratic party. And it sounds like as a pragmatist, that's something that you're seeing is really the only option at this point. Is that true? Well, I, I left the democratic party because I didn't see that as much of an option. Um, but then, you know, being more involved in third parties, that's a tough road too. So there is no easy road and yeah. they all have their pros and cons. I mean, you get involved in a in the Democratic Party. It's such a big party. It's hard to have much an effect. It's going to run by inertia and by the financial forces that mostly fund their candidates. And if you get involved in a third party, like my values correspond very closely with those of the Green Party, probably obviously since I joined the Green Party, sure. I was active in it. But it's marginalized, and it's marginalized because of the election system, and the two main parties protect that election system because they really don't want to see that change. They don't see any need for it to change. And, and especially on the presidential level, I mean, on the national level, do you think that it's more possible for kind of an, uh, a movement locally, like especially in Lane County? Do you think that there is a chance for somebody that would – run as a Green Party candidate to win a seat, maybe like, uh, I mean, a lot of the main seats that I'm thinking of are, are supposed to be nonpartisan, like city council, mayor, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that it's a viable option for Green Party candidates in a, in a local level? Well, where they win, it's usually in nonpartisan elections like that. Um, it's, it's not real frequent, but if, if you can get a good candidate that's able to pull together a lot of people and, uh, you know, has the skills, the political skills to do that, then you can win at a local level because party label is really a big obstacle. Um, Green Party sounds environmentalist to most people. That's probably the major thing they would take from that name. But it also connotates, you know, this is marginal party that I haven't heard much about that that never seems to win office. So even if it sounds good to me, why should I waste my vote on it? Right. So party label becomes an obstacle as well as an attraction. Yeah. And in certain circles, the D, the Democrat is a, a no-go and the R is a no-go, you know? So it's really interesting that people are fed up with the, they're like, I don't like my party, but I hate that party, but I'm not going to consider this third one. Well, usually what they do is they drop out entirely. Yeah. They stop yeah. voting. They stop paying attention. So you kind of mentioned one, you know, I was going to ask the big differences between the Green Party and the Democratic Party. You know, the Green Party, as far as the general consensus 
you know, especially on Google and whatnot, is that it would be considered on the political spectrum to be left wing. I don't think that it's that cut and dry. I think that there's elements kind of from I hate to think of everything in the du- duality of the two-party system because yeah. there's so no, much there's outside of it. But it's definitely political views are multi-dimensional, not unidimensional. Like, right. And I was kind of surprised reading the book and learning a little bit more about it about the libertarianism kind of beliefs inside of the Green Party. I didn't realize that that would I didn't know a lot about it to be honest, which is the beauty of of you writing this book. It gives us an opportunity to check it out. So in the beginning of the book you talk about the history of the party in Europe, primarily in Germany. And then where, where that kind of took off and it wasn't the beginning, it wasn't the first uh, European Green Party in Germany. It was just really what made it kind of get wa- uh, worldwide attention. Can you talk on that a little bit? Well, yeah, there were Green Parties that uh, won elections before that, I think in Belgium. I don't quite remember the European history as well as the American history. Uh, but because Germany is such a prominent nation in Europe and in the world, really, when the Green Party won a significant number of seats in the election of uh, 1983, it made news around the world and it inspired people who were fed up with their party system and interested in environmental issues and other issues that are uh, compatible with green values. It it made them um, decide to try to organize in the United States and get something going here. So that was really the trigger when people saw, oh, a new party can win seats. Right. And this party sounds pretty interesting. And, you know, you talk a little bit about the parliamentary system and how it was more viable, because if you actually get some waves inside of a, uh, the system, parliamentary system, you actually then have a seat at the table. Whereas in America, we have such a winner take all election base, you know, situation that it's like, that's why get, it, it becomes kind of, yeah, you get nothing and, and almost become a joke. And it's sad, you know, in some ways, in some circles. So now the most uh, popular uh, third or Green Party candidate in the presidential uh, ca- case is R- Ralph Nader. In the 2000 yeah. election, Ralph Nader. That was uh, their high watermark. Yeah. And there, and I remember, and I was very young. I was 18 in 2000, and I actually didn't vote, which is sad. I probably would have voted. I don't know. Who knows? I was a little anarchist at that time, and I didn't <laughs> know enough. And I would have, I didn't vote, but I probably would have voted for Nader because there was campaign reform. That was what was and explain to me what was happening. So, you know, this is for the younger audience that doesn't know about what was going on fully in 2000. We, we, we didn't have the access to information that exists today. So at 18, I knew nothing. Whereas I'm really impressed by 16, 17, 18 year olds today. They actually have a lot more. Uh, Too much information, maybe in some, in some ways. Sure. So what was the big thing that was being pushed? What was it? 5%. If Ralph Nader got that, there would be campaign reform. What did that mean? Uh, say that again. What was the five percent? If he got five percent of the vote, wasn't that oh. going to lead to campaign reform? Uh, you it qualifies a party for uh, funding okay. in a future election cycle. You can get government money to run your convention and uh, government money to reimburse the campaign for some expenses. So the Republican and Democratic parties get a lot of taxpayer money to run their conventions. <laughs> They right. don't fund it themselves. Well, they take corporate funding, too, uh, but they get a lot of government money as well as their candidates. You know, in the general election, often they've taken government money. So it would qualify the Green Party to get some government funding, make it easier for them to um, get the finances they need to run more uh, strong, more competitive campaigns. Right. So I remember hearing about that in 2000, that even if he wasn't going to win, you know, which was pretty clear, but he had a very serious run. It's probably one of the most successful third party campaigns I've, I've seen, at least in my life. Certainly on the left. Yeah. Yeah. Now Ross Perot was sure. got a much higher vote share in the, in both that election and the previous election, previous presidential election. But then, you know, he had an awful lot of his own money to spend on his campaign. Right. He was an oil tycoon. Was Ross, Ross Perot, was he on the ballot? He was on the ballot in 2000. Yeah, he was. I didn't realize that. I knew yeah, it was in a joke. 96. Well, <laughs> his, sure. His, his big shot was 1996, uh, but he wasn't an oil tycoon. He made his money in uh, 
data systems. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. But I, he was from Texas. I guess I assumed. See, this is what I'm talking about. See, the lack of information back then. I, my dad voted for, for Ross Perot. I think it was 96 and went and saw him speak when he, he came to mm -hmm. Eugene, you know, and, or maybe it was in Oregon. I was so young. I didn't, well, you got, I don't know, 19% of the vote or something like that. I don't quite recall, but it was high. Which is, yeah, it's pretty significant. He was a tiny little man. You know, the the uh, uh, the <laughs> Saturday Night Live skits were pretty incredible with Dana Carvey playing Ross Perot and George Bush uh -huh. Sr. Yeah, they're so, usually good. Now, in your book, you talk a lot about the spoiler effect in presidential elections. Uh, and Ralph Nader uh, was looked at as being a spoiler. And you kind of disagreed with that viewpoint as far as if he took enough vote. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, he was accused of being a spoiler in 2000. It was both the high water park, high watermark for the Green Party because they got such a high vote share in the presidential election. And it was also the beginning of their downfall because when they started being accused of being spoilers, everybody that leaned left, not everybody, but a significant part of the people who lean left started attacking the Green Party as, you know, you just took votes away from Al Gore and now we're stuck with George Bush. The, the guy who got us into the Iraq war. So um, any any in our political system, anybody that gets even a tiny sliver of the vote, if somebody loses by a tiny sliver of the vote, they're going to attack you. They're not going to say we ran a poor campaign or we okay. should have tried harder or our issues weren't appealing to people. People, they'll say it's your fault. I mean, which right. is pretty ridiculous, but it's still a story that goes around. So once they were attacking um, Ralph Nader as being a spoiler, then the Green Party didn't have a real good response to that. I mean, they could explain why they didn't regard him as a spoiler, but that didn't convince many people. In your time with the Green Party, did you ever have any situation where Democrats reached out to you to try to make maybe say, why don't you guys drop out and then, you know, we'll kind of consolidate and we'll listen to your platform? Did that ever happen? No, <laughs> no, no. See, that's uh, what well, I, I was only an officer in the party for two years. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I didn't have a long term history with the party. But uh, one actually, when I ran for Secretary of State, both the Republican and Democratic candidates always seemed happy to have me there. Yeah. I think they found me funny. <laughs> yeah. And it, it brings, I, I'm a firm believer in bringing, you know, different voices to the table. I wish. I don't know about when you ran for secretary of state, if there was any publicly viewed debates, for example, you know, I don't know if the average citizen even knows where to access this, that stuff, you know, like debates between the candidates yeah, just online. Think, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think it's only reaching the people that are extremely involved. You know, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't reach. I mean, that's because for president CNN and, and Fox and MSNBC have made it like a football game. You know, mm -hmm. the way that they do the debates and it's a train wreck. I mean, the, the well, I was excluded. I was excluded from um, the Oregon public broadcasting debate they had between the Democratic and Republican candidates for that secretary of state race. Wow. What was the and reason so, they gave? Did they even give you one? Uh, they didn't really give me one, but it's kind of like viable candidates are the people that they're interested in. And they didn't see third party candidates or alter I like to call them alternative party candidates um, as viable. I went down to the station anyway and, you know, confronted both the other candidates who had been friendly to me and said, you know, why, why aren't you telling them they should have more people in this debate? Um, and they were apologetic, but they said, oh, we can't do anything about it. It's their decision and so on and so forth, which was predictable, but also disappointing. Sure. Yeah, that's hard. So, you know, one of the one of the interesting things of the book is the ebbs and flows of the movement. But then the subtitle you talk about is the neglect of a strategic dilemma. Tell me about what you meant by that. I think it's pretty obvious when you start reading the book about, you know, how after like a Ralph Nader, uh, the spoiler effect that people called, called that out. And then Jill Stein as well in 2016, hmm. there's a lot of people that with Jill Stein that they felt like she was, you know, taking votes from Hillary, which, it's, I don't, we'll talk about that in a minute, but tell me, tell me about that. The subtitle is the neglect of the, of a strategic dilemma. Well, that, I, I couldn't find a lot of discussion of, you know, how are we going to approach it when people accuse us of being spoilers, which had started to happen already in New Mexico and in, in their race for the governor. This is before 2000. Um, but what, what do we do when it looks like we may cause the Republican to win instead of the Democrat? And people generally think we're closer to the Democrats. So 
how are we going to approach that? There wasn't a lot of discussion of that. And it came down pretty hard on them with the 2000 election for president, obviously, is a real consequential decision. Um, and the party fractured along that lines for the 2004 leading up to the 2004 presidential election. So now that it's in our face that you're being accused of being spoilers, how do we approach this? Do we go ahead and do it anyway because we really don't see a difference between the Democrats and Republicans? Or should we step back a little because there is a difference, at least enough difference that, that we should be careful here? Or you know, should we just not run a presidential candidate at all because this is too tough to solve? So it became a problem that they weren't well prepared for, I don't think. And uh, still one that they don't have an answer for. And the strategic dilemma is how do we keep all of our people together around one strategy for dealing with the spoiler issue um, when they have different views of the Democratic Party? Some yeah. hate it. Some think it's, well, it's lesser evil. Others, you know, varying views. Sure. You know, and in the 2020 election, this is going to show my ignorance. Was there a Green Party candidate? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's going to show, I mean, it shows they There's don't actually even... two Green Party candidates in Oregon because uh, one of the, one of the guys who uh, ran for the Green Party nomination to the presidential race, um, he felt he was treated unfairly in the nominating process and he ran with the progressive party here in Oregon. Okay. You know, he tried to get on the ballot through other parties when he lost the Green Party nomination. So there are a lot of Green Party people. I don't know how many, but people that I know who are members of the Green Party and actually didn't vote for the Green Party candidate in 2020. They voted for the Progressive Party candidate. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, I understand where people I, I don't like the idea of people saying, you know, you're wasting your vote because that's mm. that's basically telling someone that your vote, your voice isn't yours. You know, that's kind of what it how it comes across to me. I do think especially in Oregon, you know, we can we're we're not going to the Democrat is going to win Oregon, at least for the time being. It's not, it's, we're talking about president, you know, it's not really an option for, I, I mean, at one point I saw a memory on Facebook pop up of my post. And I said, if Biden, this shows how little I know, it said, if Biden is the candidate, Trump will win Oregon, you know? And I, I mean, mm -hmm. I think at one point I thought that that was an option. I thought that because you could just well, see could this, yeah, this growing noise from Trump supporters, they were the loudest, you know, and continue to be some of the loudest. I have to give some credit to some of the crazies here for a second that, you know, I have a neighbor and he had every square inch of his lawn had a Trump sign, which is, which is his rights. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say he shouldn't, but then when the election was over with, by the time it was announced on, you know, the Saturday of that week that Biden was the projected winner, then he took all that stuff down. And I respect that, you know, do fight your fight. You know what I mean? Do what you're going to do, but don't make it to, I mean, some of these people that like, what is your take on this? Uh, all these awkward court cases with Trump and, and the fact that people are still saying as of, as you know, as recent as today, that people are still saying that he's going to win. I mean, it's insane. Well, in Trump's case, I think it's a personality disorder. He simply cannot accept losing and he doesn't mind lying and making things up. Um, I don't even know if he's lying or if he really believes this stuff. That's that's part of the thing that's hard to tell with him because he just seems out of touch with reality. The people who follow him, there's a lot of different reasons. My take on that is some of their reasons are legitimate. Like they don't see the Democrats really helping them, Yeah, which I think to a large extent is true. Um, or they, they feel like, you know, he's been working on their behalf. In some ways he has. Some, no, some of the positions he took in his first... Uh, well, in the 2016 campaign made sense to me. Like we needed different trade policy. That was, that's been a problem for a long time. Um, but his, he was incompetent. Now I'm getting into my opinions of this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I forgot what the actual question was, but it's all you know, good. look at how many, going back to your, your, uh, your prediction, I guess you said you made that Trump might actually win in Oregon. If Biden um, was the candidate. Yeah. If Biden was the candidate, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, who knows? That's you know, true. because that's what really led a lot of people to start rethinking yeah. what was going on. Um, people that might have leaned his way just because they were Republicans started saying, well, he's he's lying about this and he's not handling it very well. And look at the number of deaths compared to other countries. So if that hadn't happened, who knows what would have happened? I, I, I don't know that he would have won Oregon, but he could well have won 
the presidential election handily, you know, and I think that, you know, and I want, I mean, I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying this, but go ahead, say it. I think that with Trump, a lot of the support for Trump comes from white Christian people that feel like they have been used by the democratic party or everyone on the left as a scapegoat to push their own initiative. Like, you know, they're like, well, they look at me as being the racist, the closed minded, the bigoted, controlling, judgmental, you know, and all that stuff. And it, they feel like they're being judged, controlled, you know? And so, I mean, it's gross because he's a con man. And I see, I saw through it when I was nine years old with Donald Trump. I mean, I was a little kid and was like, this guy is a sleaze ball. <laughs> but, but literally when I was nine years old, and back watching the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, with Robin Leach. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know, but I get well, for a lot of folks that doesn't matter. They say yeah. he's a sleazeball fine, but he's our sleazeball. Right. Yeah. And, and that's it. And so, you know, I'm trying to find a better way of understanding it so that for one, I'm somebody that likes to, likes to like people. I don't, I don't like to have hostilities towards people. I don't like to have uh, just, I don't want to fight constantly. I want to find common ground, maybe concede a little bit on some things, some things you cannot concede on like marriage equality is not, it's not, you know, there's just a lot of issues that are not debatable for me. Well, let's, let's acknowledge though, that this isn't all about Trump because the trends towards greater partisanship and for economic insecurity and for white ring militias were going on for decades before Trump came along. Right. He just, he, he was successful in whipping it all up to a higher pitch but it's not simply due to him being there. So that actually, I mean, this is a complete change in direction, but with some of the militias, like the proud boys, they're not anarchist, right? I mean, they're, they're fascist, right? They so wouldn't what call themselves anarchists or fascist. They wouldn't call themselves fascist because fa- is fascist ever a good word? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? You know, I think people just understand that to mean an insult. Sure. You know, you're but a bad guy. Do, you're a fascist, but, but, with but the, it means were, something. We were talking about anarchism and, you know, an organization or they, you know, they do it without the structure of government or whatever, but they use violence. Wouldn't you think that the Proud Boys would kind of fall into that category? Even though, I mean, it's a completely, it's like right wing anarchism. Well, anarchists? Well, there's an anarchist streak in them, but what they really want to do, I think, is uh, set up a white Christian separate nation. Yeah, which is ironic. Big big theme within that movement. Not everybody has that point of view, but um, once you set up your own nation, then you're going to use some kind of coercive mechanisms to, uh, to maintain law and order, as they right. say. So they're anarchists insofar as they now believe that government is the problem. And I, I just finished reading a book by, uh, by an academic who was studying the rise of the right-wing movement. These things have ebbs and flows. Right. Um, and the most recent one came after Vietnam, actually, according to her, and she had a pretty convincing argument um, when instead of enforcing the um, anti-black uh, government policies by vigilantism, they started turning against the government because they felt the government had turned against them. Which so, is happening right now, yeah. Now we have a right-wing movement that's trying to tear down the government um, along with... Uh, anarchists would like to tear down the government so maybe they can have common cause <laughs> well this is the perfect storm you, you talk and you make a good point about how it's not donald trump was more of a symptom of this uh, growing issue behind the scenes but the problem is is that he is a lot he's enabling it openly i mean he can say he you know his supporters will be like he condemned them i'm like yeah but it took like it was like painful for him to do that to condemn these hate groups and it's really scary because these groups are now emboldened by basically saying like, this is our guy. And they will literally, you talk about violence, they will kill to, to defend that. And well, these folks are not going to go away when Donald Trump leaves office and he's going to continue to whip up it up. And they're going to feel like not only uh, is it the government against them, but now the whole election system is biased and rigged. And so you can't count on that. So what can you count on? If you can't count on politics, you can count on having a gun. Right. And then and then when I, I would imagine that in a, in a Biden administration or just even regardless of who the next president was going to be, even if it was Trump, that the FBI is going to be doing a lot of work to kind of try to 
quell some of their movement, some of these militia groups. I mean, we see we saw what happened in Michigan, you know, and it's just working right into their hands because they're like, look, you see, this is what the government does. They they take away your freedoms. And it's insane. I mean, it's it's really scary because it, it's a huge threat of of violence. And I don't know. I don't know what the well, hell. Another scary part to that, because I remember back in the 60s, the left wing was targeted by the FBI and other government agencies infiltrated. And, you know, there was assassination and things like that. Um, but what they didn't have is ins with the police, like a lot of right wing militia yeah. people do. Yeah. They've got a lot of people in the military and in the police forces that are sympathetic with their aims and their movement. Which is so ironic to me because it's got this anti kind of government establishment mm. attitude. And then you've got the people that are supposed to enforce the laws are looking the other way. That's the biggest issue that I see in this country right now. Well, that's that's a fascist element, too. I mean, that just smacks of what happened with Hitler. I mean, we saw it in Thurston. I, I don't care what anybody says. This is my town. I watched the full live stream. I wasn't there, but you can see everything that was happening. And you can see cops with the Black Lives Matter people stopping them from doing things, telling them to get, you know, get back, get back, get back. And then over here, you got, we'll just call them proud boys. You know, the word Patriot too has been completely bastardized. Hmm. I mean, when someone says they're real Patriots, I'm like, Oh, so then, you know, you met them at a Klan rally. That's what I think. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's insane. Uh, so back to, we're going to get a lot of hate messages now. Oh, you know, I hope people listen all the way through. Cause that's, that's, a, that's the goal of mine back to, uh, you know, the green party and then really just third parties in general. What do you see that would need to happen? I hate the word viability or vi to be viable, but what do you see would need to happen to make third party candidates more viable? Now you've done a lot of work for star voting. And so obviously reworking the way that we think about voting and the way that we actually vote would probably be one of the best ways. But what do you see as, as needing to happen to change the way that third party candidates are, are looked at and then how we can make them more viable? Well, that's the biggest way. That's the single biggest way is changing the way we vote and elect people. I worked for a long time on ranked choice voting. And then uh, when star voting was presented to me as a newer, improved version of ranked choice voting. I took a hard look and decided it was better. Um, but we got to change the election system to something like that, a preferential voting system where instead of just picking one person, you can say, these are my choices, how much I like each one compared to the other, or proportional representation. You got to have some kind of system that actually gives dissenting voices a path to being heard in the election system. Without that, um, you, you have a very volatile situation that's always going to keep them on the margin and more and more people are being pushed to the margins because, you know, like there's more non-affiliated people, voters in the, in Oregon than there are Republicans. What, who's representing them? Right. Um, the other thing that parties can do is, uh, and, and this makes it hard for them to do anything they know they need to do is like you attract more credible candidates you raise more money, you get more media attention. Um, all that stuff is important, but it's hard to do when you're a, a marginal party in a two-party system. You know, who wants to run, who, who has serious ambitions to be a politician and has the skills to do it, wants to run for a party where they're bound to lose. So it's hard to attract the candidates that have the kind of skills and name recognition or credibility that they could get a lot of votes. Hard to raise money hard to get people to join the party. All the things you need to know, do to make a more viable party are affected by the fact that you've got this big obstacle to, you know, even if you get a lot of votes, you still get nothing for it. Right. Other now, than that, I think uh, internal organization is important. And that's that's been a problem in the Green Party. I think it's a problem in the Libertarian Party and other parties. And that's partially due to the fact that you can't win. So, you know, People are always arguing about how to better organize the party so you could win or could do better, and they have different ideas. Uh, but the the leaning towards uh, grassroots democracy and anarchist views, you know, let's let's keep let's keep power down with the people and not up in hierarchical positions. Well, th the way that sometimes get implemented, the way it usually gets implemented, just makes it chaotic. Or right. anybody who shows up at a meeting is making or unmaking decisions. Um, anybody who emerges that has leadership skills, uh, they're distrustful of that. 
um, because they see it as like empire building or trying to have more dominance. And uh, all the voters who register with the party don't really have a voice unless they show up. Uh, you got meetings, conventions, supposed to be a convention to pick nominees for state offices. And I've been at meetings where there were 12 people present picking a candidate to run for Congress um, and got a narrow vote, like seven out of 12, which makes no sense. Seven people choosing the person who's going to represent your party. Yeah. Um, so internal organization and how you do nominations and all that could be could be fixed. It's really tricky because I actually believe that there has to be some form of leadership to squash some of the radicalization that's happening in this country, regardless of what party people fall under. There has to be someone that comes out and kind of condemns some of the extremism, you know, meaning. Well, I, I don't equate extremism and radicalism, which most people do, because okay. to me, extreme means you're willing to go to extreme lengths to make okay. something happen, sure. like kill sure. other people if necessary, which I, I don't want to do. And I. I'm too old to try to do. I, I die first. <laughs> right. But uh, radicalism, radical means it comes from the center. So a radical tries to go to the center of the problem and fix it. And I think in the United States, you do need radicalism. You need people thinking about, well, what's at the root of these problems? As we were talking about, Trump is on the surface of the problems. What's at the root of it? And I think the root of it is um, political and economic, the kind yeah. of institutions we have. Yeah, that's the frustration. And I, I guess it's because I'm, like I said, about conceding and not wanting to fight sometimes. And I think you're completely right. And it's lazy on my part for having that attitude that I'm like, we just need to be like, play nice. You know, we need to play nice. Well, people are fed up and people are tired of it, you know, and it's like the movie network that that classic uh, uh, clip. I mean, it's a movie, it's fiction, but it's it's based on reality, you know, that that the guy's like, first you have to get mad, you know, first you have to get, you've seen that movie. It's classic, that line where he's like, first you have to get mad. You need to, you know, it's, it's a great clip. I used it. I sampled well, There's it. an old saying that if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. Yeah. But I actually disagree with that. I don't think anger is a bad thing because I think it's a, it's an instinct to try to summon up energy to get things you need that you've been deprived of. That's what anger is. But I think an even stronger motivation and one that's more effective is concern for other people. You know, yeah. If you truly have concern for other people and you see how people are suffering, then you'll try to do something. Well, and that's where we see in a local level, there's candidates that are running uh, as as Democrats that are probably not the typical Democrat that, you know, I think people are realizing that that's the best option. You get these progressive movements, but, you know, like a Johannes Tadeo for example, for the Latinx community that he and his, I think it was his cousin, they fought and fought and fought to get ICE removed from the Springfield jail. You know, that there is the contract between ICE and Springfield and people just didn't know about it. And he found out about it and he's like, this is wrong. We don't want this. We don't want to be paying for this, you know? And so they fought and they had this grassroots movement and they succeeded. So now he has credibility for fighting for this community, this marginalized group of people and he has a bright future in politics. Now he was defeated in his run for city council, but he's super young, you know? And so he's got a bright future and he's learning. And I think he was okay with, with, with I mean, Corey Rodley, the woman that won, she's great, you know? And that, I mean, that was a, a crazy thing because I saw two candidates that I was like, I don't know which one to vote for because I like them both. And we need more That's of a good problem to have. Yeah. You know, and but it's a bad problem to have too, because it means that people like you, torn between two candidates if half vote for one candidate and half vote for the other candidate neither one of them is likely to win right if, well if, if they're running if there's a third, third candidate, candidate. Yeah, yeah if there's if a the third, third candidate then you swoop in and take splitting problem right yeah so and and you know anybody listening to this we've talked at nauseum about star voting uh i i don't know i don't know where it's at right Not now nauseated. well for this on the show we've talked about it quite a bit which is good because there was a lot of hope and i kind of Unfortunately, I'm sure Sarah Wolf is somewhere angry at me because I, I didn't uh, cover it a lot towards the end of, of the run and the election. I don't know exactly what happened, but I, to be honest, I was focused so much on Springfield that because it was on the ballot for Eugene. Or it was, did it end up on the Blaine ballot? County? Well, yeah, this most recent cycle, it's uh, um, there was a petition both for Lane County and a petition to get it for Eugene okay. city elections. Um, the Eugene one got enough signatures, but then they disqualified several signatures. Then the star voting campaign took it to court because they said these, these signatures were valid and they were disqualified for bad reasons. 
And now it's in the hands of the judge. They've already heard the arguments and the judge is going to determine whether or not it will appear on the May ballot. So there's a chance there may be a, a ballot measure in 2021, which wow. is kind of strange in the springtime. Um, so if we can like rally all the, all the people in favor of it to turn out the vote, then it has a good chance. Well, I like that. I mean, I know that the, in, historically the turnout has been has been less in midterms, but I actually feel like we can change that, in, you know, because the mail-in voting is so easy. And I like that, honestly, that in some ways that we can focus on one issue or maybe, you know, there'll be some other things on the ballot. I wish there was an option in 2021 for picking the mayor of Springfield, but no, that's not going to happen. It's going to be, it's going to be city council selecting that. So like you were talking about before, when seven people are voting for something, it's not the way that things should be. You know, that, that I, I don't know that when I, again, I've talked about that at length and I look forward to having people on from city council talking about how they came to their conclusion to pick the mayor and all that good stuff. But yeah. So, you know, Alan Zundell, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I'm going to have a link in the show notes for the book. Uh, the book again is the creation. Here it is the creation of the green party of the United States and it's neglect of a strategic dilemma. Uh, there will be links in the show notes on how you can buy the book. You know, anybody listening, uh, I really recommend reading it because I think that you can really learn a lot, not only about the Green Party, but just about, you know, the history, especially for someone from my generation, about 20 years before that, maybe 30 years before I w came along, what was building in this country? And you can kind of get a sense of it. And you make some really good comparisons to current stuff that makes it easy for someone like myself to understand. And if well, I can, one of my objectives actually is to give people a sense that these kind of struggles have been going on for a while and you can learn from the past. Yeah, we're supposed to, you know, or history will, will be doomed to repeat itself. Is that the saying, you know, so yeah, yeah, you know, this is really cool to get to talk to you. Uh, I've been reading little side note, some, some things you've been dropping some crumbs on Facebook about moving to San Diego and we're not going to let you, we're going to keep you in Oregon. <laughs> we're going to keep you in Oregon. No, I mean, that's the beauty. You gotta bring my kids here then. Right. <clears throat> if I was going to live in California, San Diego would be where I'd want to be. That is actually where both of my parents are from. So uh, I've got a connection with that area and I love it down there. And I don't think it's going to happen soon. Okay. Well, you've been dropping crumbs and, and, you know, it's funny, like I said, your, your Facebook feed is, is something I can relate to a lot because you're happy go lucky. You have some days where you're like, Oh yeah, you're in a good mood. And then other days where you're like, you know what? Screw everybody. This is, <laughs> and it cracks me up. Well, Alan Zundell, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. you know, I'm going to end this with a song. This is a song I made back in 2018. That is a satire about the war on Christmas. And I got a guest verse from Jay Philly local MC from uh, dusted temples is his crew. And, and Jay Philly is just one of the best MCs, if not the best I'm saying, I'm saying it here on in, uh, in Eugene hip hop. And this song was a lot of fun to make. It's a satire about Trump claiming victory on the war on Christmas. And so I say, Merry which, Christmas. Which side was he on? <laughs> uh, well, you'll have to hear the song. There's also a music video on YouTube uh, about, you know, that we made, and it's a lot of Black Friday shoppers punching each other in the face <laughs> as the chorus plays, we are saying Merry Christmas again. And it's a lot of fun, you know, and it was a lighthearted take on, you know, the war on Christmas and people complaining about not having an angel on their, on their Starbucks cup and all that nonsense. But, you know, the whole, we haven't heard a lot of it this year because everybody's locked in, but the whole happy holidays, Merry Christmas debate is so stupid. You know, you know, I don't think anybody's offended if you say Merry Christmas on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just happy holidays encompasses all of it, you know, and it, and it represents everybody and includes Thanksgiving and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all the other things. Right. Any kind of good wishes people want to give me, I'll, I'll take. Right. And I'll take donations as well. You know, so, <laughs> so any, anything you want to do there. Speaking of, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, my title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro. As always, James Barber is a big uh, donator to the show. And then also, uh, it's getting a little bit too late to be a stocking stuffer, but snacktack.com, S-N-A-K-T-A-K.com, and Jeremy Dirtball Cummings is now a sponsor of the show, and he has these treats that are called Dirt Balls that are really tasty. I got some in the mail from him, so you can go to his website, snacktack.com, or you can also find that link on my sponsors page, strpod.com slash sponsors. I want to thank Jeremy for becoming a sponsor to the show. And... Uh, also to you, Alan, you know, I want to say a personal message that during the shutdown, when I was out of work, you had given a donation uh, 
to the podcast. And it was really appreciated because it came at a time when I did not have income. And so it meant a lot to me. And so I appreciate you, uh, your, your donation at that time. It, it, it really meant a lot to me because it well, made thank it Donald Trump because he sent us a check. We really didn't need. Yeah. This, the stimulus, that was really cool. I really, it just, it, it meant a lot to me because I didn't expect it. And there was a few people that gave me some donations that were what I would consider to be sizable. They're still small, you know, whatever. It's all relative when it comes to money, but it came at a time when I just didn't even, I couldn't justify buying a Dutch bros coffee. I was like, it was the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. And I realized, yeah. And I realized how much value I put at in, into my income. You know, because when I wasn't bringing in money, it was really hard for my mental health because that's, I mean, I was going to be fine. We ha- we recovered for our household bills for a few months, but it was still really scary. So I got way off the point here. Alan, again, thank you. So this is me, Self-Esteem Boat Willie, with saying Merry Christmas again. Remember to do what the gas bag says, or I'll have his minions cut off your heads. As the holidays approach us, we'll take this time to focus on the proper way to address greedy shoppers. We won't stop. We're bringing Christmas back. Do it through judging you on your syntax. We won't stand for this We will all get pissed If the coffee cup doesn't have an angel This snowflake business can take a hike Had no choice but to sit down and write Satire you're wrong, but the war on the sacred day If you have a problem, you can move far away If you don't like it, you can leave You can move far away Seriously, what are you still doing here? You can move far away, I say So celebrate what you celebrate and have the nerve to give the clerk an extra saucy word for them to go back home and marinate and let them know your blanket statement covers a whole picnic and the same money you both pay is worth more with a message. It's an annual war on my belief system. They beat the drums on the TV news to reach Christians. Pour out some eggnog for the homies lost to trampling crowds. A sale is a sale and we're leading by example now. When seasons change from pumpkin to cornucopia, it's rearranged to run a in dystopia. Freedom rings with every purchase at a less amount so we can Wrap a gift the kids a week from now forget about So this is Christmas and what have we done? We capitalize and radicalize the sacred day of family fun Ask for something we're not gonna get back I guess that the best chance is putting it in white text up on a red hat We are saying Merry Christmas Merry Christmas again We are saying Merry Christmas again